If you have your Bibles with you, if you'd like to turn to page 4, Genesis chapter 2, and starting at verse 4. That's on page 4 in the church Bibles. And the subheading is Adam and Eve. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, 
and they felt no shame. Well, we're beginning a series of uh, five uh, sermons uh, on the theme of uh, picnics, though this sermon will not have much to do about picnics. It was set by the team in um, Cornerstone. However, we are looking at the orchard in Eden and uh, basing most of the sermon on that reading that we've just had. There was a a young pastor. He was called to his first pastorate in rural Kentucky. And he began his ministry on the first Sunday by preaching a fiery sermon on the dangers of smoking. The end of the service, the elders, as they were accustomed to do then, went to him and said, young man, do you realize that a third of the congregation earned their money from growing tobacco? He said, I didn't know that. Well, they said, you do now. So the next Sunday, he preached against drinking. The elders went to speak to him and said, this is Kentucky, famous for Jack Daniel's whiskey. Many people distill whiskey. Well, he said, I didn't realize that. You do now. Then the third week, he preached against the dangers of gambling. Once again, the elders went up to him after the sermon and said, I hope you realize that in this county, people earn their money by breeding thoroughbred race horses. So the fourth Sunday goes into the pulpit and he preached a sermon on the dangers in deep sea diving in international waters. (laughs) Now, safe but rather sterile and irrelevant. And one of the problems of Genesis 1 and 2 and perhaps 3 is the graveyard of arid discussion where at the end of the day, it's merely a matter of opinion. And it's rather unhelpful. And I think there's lots of people, if you pardon the term, have preached sermons inherent in diving in deep sea waters, perfectly correct, informative, but rather irrelevant. So, here we are in the beginning. Orchard in Eden. We live at a time of massive um, political correctness. Uh, I was reading in the paper a few weeks ago, and uh, here's the cutting. The headmaster of Cummersdale Primary School in Carlisle bought six pairs of industrial safety goggles for pupils to wear when they played conkers in the playground. It gets much better. Councillors removing a swing under the oak tree in Hampshire village of Sheet, even though generations of children had played there safely since 1897. They thought it was too dangerous. Um, Wigston Civic Society members in Leicestershire had to fill out two-page risk assessment, note some of you ramblers, before going rambling possible dangers 
that were highlighted included ploughed fields and rabbit holes. It's good, isn't it? And this, I'll give you one more. There's lots of these. Mike Reed, if you've heard of him, he's a long-distance swimming champion who crossed the channel more than 30 times, was banned from using his local council pool at Ipswich because it wasn't supervised. So, it's a great... It's a great world, isn't it? And the amount of gobbledygook that comes out of Genesis 1 and 2 is tiresome in the extreme, which would put political correctness in the shade when people say, you can't believe that? Why can't you believe that? Why not? You can't help but wonder if we haven't been duped altogether. So here we are, orchard in Eden. What we have here in Genesis 1 and 2 is, and this is the big thing really, is God's image, the image or the stamp of the divine upon mankind, which poses a question. And if now we were to do, which is customary in Cornerstone, um, because of the way that it's structured, we could go into groups and we'll say, we'll take five minutes out, form yourselves into groups of fours, and here is the question. Two questions, actually. Let me put it to you. Deep down, mankind is basically evil. Or, deep down, man is basically, intrinsically good. Discuss. Uh, what would your response be? What is your perspective on that? And what reasons would you give? If, for instance, this was a congregation in Oslo this morning, and people ask about Andres Breivik, what would they say? It's terribly subjective and emotional, depending on experience, isn't it? Or people have been so incredibly kind and generous to you, that you can, call, you can give examples of man's, the milk of human kindness again and again? Well, of course, the answer is both. Man is fallen. Man is capable of immense kindness and unbelievable cruelty. And history bears that out all the time. And yet, for all of that, God's image is impressed upon all of us as we've come into this world. Man is basically evil. Man is basically good. Interesting discussion if you were to write an essay, for example. So let's set the scene. Here is a, here is a statement that I've written down and I give it to you. And it's this. Here is possibly the most important statement in the whole Bible about mankind. Possibly the most important statement in the Bible about mankind. And here it is, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and it's this. Then God said, let us, in this uh, Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image likeness and our likeness 
And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, and so on and so forth. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God. Three times. Unequivocally, the stamp of the divine is upon mankind. When we use the word man in the generic sense, men and women, of course. So, what can we say about that and about this um, orchard in Eden? Two concepts come out of this. The first, we are to rule. And the second, we are to enjoy relationship. We haven't done very well on both in many accounts, have we? When you think of the ecological disaster globally and our view on that and what can we do about global warming and it would be interesting to comment on that. Nevertheless, here we are and we are, to, we are told in, in, in the reading that we, that we have that we are to, we are to rule that we, uh, over creation and it is part of God's image ruling the world and there you have it in verse 28, and to replenish, not only by procreating, but to replenish the whole of the ecology where there's balance in this fragile earth in which we live. That's our calling. Part of the image of God to rule. Secondly, and in chapter 2 and verse 18, relationship. Relationship. Man is both singular and plural. You see that again, going back to verse uh, 27. God created man in his own image. And verse 26, let us make man in our image. We are singular and plural. We are unified and diverse. And these differences are the things that enrich and stimulate relationship. Hence the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship. However, the rule and relationship now has been fractured by sin. What a surprise. We are capable of being incredibly selfish. We are capable of living on the rule that the end justifies the means and we can convince ourselves of it, whatever the cost. Whatever the implication on children, whatever the financial crisis, we can justify it. We're good at it. That's our track record. It's fractured by sin. Even the great leader, Gandhi, in reading the Beatitude, the Sermon on the Mount, said there's enough for the world's need, there'll never be enough for the world's greed. There's something innate within us that we like that. Enough! is never in our vocabulary. More, we are driven by more. More of whatever that is. We all, if we have faced ourselves truthfully, fa face the black I. I will. I want. I must. Whatever the cost. And it must be stated that man, however, though turned in on himself, though often selfish, distorted in thinking and perspective, yet is still in God's image, blighted, marred, nevertheless, 
in God's image. And that is true before and after the fall, before sin invaded the whole of mankind. Now all this poses questions. Here are the questions which are, again, so basic to the whole of life. Does life have meaning? Does life have meaning? Do you have meaning? You. Do I? Should we think of ourselves as persons in the image of God or, if you like, apes who have learned to walk and talk because our previous generation have been taught that as facts without even any consideration. This is not mere arid controversy. This is not just putting your head in the sand. It is trying to see who we are at this given time in the life and the history of mankind. And out of those questions come two different worldviews, and even though we might not be aware of it, two different value systems. It's true, isn't it? We value what we do and we do what we value. So, where do we get them from? Two different world systems. First of all, try to think in terms of um, the first, which I'm going to assume that we would believe, and it's this. That God created this world in love. The very heart of God. And as a consequence of us in his image, therefore, he asks us to create in love. It's part of ruling and reigning. Now, of course, all civilizations, religious or otherwise, primitive or advanced, all civilizations have something like the golden rule, uh, treat others as you'd want them to treat you. But you know where you have wars and conflict with that rule can break down very easily. But, this is the point where we're in Genesis, only a vision that sees the world as God's work, God's masterpiece of love, makes love the highest value. Our value. Our value. So it's not surprising. Love God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How do you know? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see it's got a different, a different cutting edge, hasn't it? Take God out of the equation. You can write your own rules. Bring God into the equation. Then it's his, not ours. Love the stranger, for you know what it is to be a stranger. That's the first world view, if you like, and all the consequences of that which you can think about. But there is another world view and our place within it. And it's a bit like this. And you young folk here have probably been taught a lot of this, mostly factually. This universe, it came into existence perhaps with a big bang and it might go out with a big bang. 
Or the universe came into being for no reason other than that it is here. And one day, for no reason, it will disappear. There is nothing special about humanity. It is but a myth. We are mere primates with the gift of language, nothing more. There is nothing special about any of us. We are born, we live, we die, and it's as if we had never been. Our ideals, our illusions, our hopes, mere fantasy and dream. We have no souls, but we have brains. We have no freedom, only the hard wiring of our genes. And the biggest illusion of them all is love, which is but a smokescreen for producing more people. Now, which would you prefer? And I think that you will make your own conclusion as to the values that come out of both choices. Better, I would say to you, is a world built on love than the Darwinian struggle to survive, the survival of the fittest and the most clever. The image of God, blighted, marred by sin, Two different worldviews. Now let's see this as we conclude through the eyes of the New Testament. As the New Testament looks back on this creation, as in a sense we are, and there are certain things that, that come to bear upon us. And I'd like us to say three things. But before we do that, I, while I prepared this sermon, I had dug out a very old um, humorous poem, which goes like this. It's called Monkey Talk. Three monkeys sat in a coconut tree discussing things as they are said to be. Said one to the other, now listen you, there's certain rumour that just can't be true, that man descended from our noble race. Why, the very idea is such a disgrace. No monkey ever deserted his wife starved her babies and ruined her life, and you've never known another monk to leave her babies with others to bunk or pass them on, the one to the other, till they scarcely know who is their mother. And another thing you'll never see, a monk build a fence round a coconut tree and let the coconuts go to waste. Why, if I put a fence round the tree... Starvation would make you steal from me. Here's another thing. A monkey won't do. Go out at night and get into a stew or use a gun or a club or a knife to take another monkey's life. Yes, man descended the ornery curse. But, brother, he didn't come from us. So, Let's not offend the monkeys. We have the image of God, which is like the joker in the pack, so that we are capable of massive, massive good and incredible evil. And to deny that is simply to deny history, much less the Bible as it 
glares at us and shouts to us on these issues. Well, here's the New Testament. Let's look at it. Consider the image of God from a different perspective, and particularly now as it relates to the gospel. Let's turn in our Bibles very quickly to um, Colossians 3. It's page 1184 if you're using the church Bibles. Colossians 3. We've put on the new self. We've put on the new self. We're thinking about image now, aren't we? Self-image, if you like. And this is the gospel perspective on all that's been said. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Here it is. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self, the old image, with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the... There it is, look. Borrowed from creation. The image of its creation and creator. Restored by the gospel. Fallen through sin. Reclaimed through Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Offering life and hope to those who trust in him. But there's the connection. No arid discussion about Darwinianism and evolutionary. The reclaiming of lost mankind by a redeemer. Yes, the image is marred by sin. The old self is put off. Like as if you've been working in, in, in the garden all day in the gardening clothes and you come in and you put them off and you have a shower and you put on fresh clothes. It's a picture of salvation. Putting off. Putting on Jesus Christ in the language uh, that is used, clothed in his righteousness. It's a radical change. What Jesus called born again from the inside out, not from the outside in. Religion is not enough. It's not enough. It's good. It's often the cement that can hold society together. Religion is not necessarily bad, but it's not enough to save you. It's not enough. Our resolve, well intended, is not enough. We need to have the image of God reclaimed. We need to be forgiven we need to come to Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness as we trust in him. Do you see the perspective? Secondly, we are being transformed. You may very well say, I know lots of Christians, I don't think much of them. That's probably true. They probably don't think much of you. And what point is being made? Unless, of course, we say that we are perfect, which is rather troublesome, isn't it? We are being transformed. Turn to 2 uh, Corinthians 3, and you'll find this in page uh, 1160. Sorry, 1160, 1160. We are being transformed. So there's this work of reclaiming the image of God, the new creation. We are being transformed. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. Look at this. And we with unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord's glory, here it is, are being transformed into his likeness. The image, there it is again, borrowed from creation, with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Isn't that lovely? I can tell you that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
You are a work in progress. But that's exactly what you are. It is very, very easy to regress into old values, old ways of thinking, old ways of relating. Don't get involved. Keep your distance. All that sort of stuff. The gospel asks you to be vulnerable. As Jesus was, who so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes shall not perish, whose life will not dissipate into nothingness, but have eternal life. We are a work in progress. And our bodies are subject to disease, decay, and ultimately death. I remember in the John Radcliffe ward praying for somebody and reading a part of Psalm 27, which runs like this. I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And praying, then leaving the ward and within less than a week that person, very fine Christian, had died. And being asked about the reading, is it a contradiction? This is my reply. We all, all, live in the land of the dying. We are going to the land of the living. That's the point. This is where we live. The land of the dying. I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And what? Wait for him. Be of good courage. Wait for the Lord. And our puny, frenetic, busy little lives often don't allow us to do that. Lastly, one day we will be complete. Wesley had it beautifully in that, that hymn, didn't he, Charles? Change from glory into glory till in heaven I, we take our place till we cast our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love and praise. That's then. This is now, I know. One last reference. Look in, in Philippians. Just to see uh, again all these wonderful connections that we have as we read the Bible. We will be complete one day. One day. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Let's remember this. However British or wherever you come from, this is page 1180, Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Don't forget that. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they might be like his glorious body. And, and you say, and therefore, if you go on to chapter 4, it is there for this reason, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, Christ shall change our earthly bodies. All of us in varying ways will be impacted by imperfection, some more than others. The appeal on the radio this morning, if you heard it before the news at 8 o'clock, was for myeloma, non-Hodgson's uh, research, 
And the person who was diagnosed said that he was healthy and fit, just a little embellishment on his neck, just wouldn't go away, and then he discovers full of cancer and making an appeal that people should support this cause because he'd experienced it. And that happens every Sunday. And you can pick, and they never seem to repeat so much that blights mankind. And with all of our genius and all of our progress and all of our advancement, and thank God for it, in the world in which we live, yet we are living in the land of the dying. We are going to the land of the living. We are going there. And the image of God will one day be complete. We thank God for that. The hymn writer puts it, doesn't he, so beautifully. Frail as summer flowers we flourish. Blows the wind and it is gone. Yet while mortals rise and perish, God endures and changing on. He still does from generation to generation. 